To decolonize is to criticize, to open our eyes and to question why. To question what we're told is fact, to look back, to think critically about history, to question what we think we know, to investigate, not interrogate, to understand, to stop possessing land, ask my views, not secondhand assumptions. It's personal, it's political, because somehow we believe that we have to deceive. We consider media slants instead of personal stories, extracting people and resources from our territories. We forget to see the interconnectedness, our selfishness, apprehensive because it's effective. To stop making excuses, to end empty truces, to stop saying you're sorry when your actions never change, to feel the change, to see the change, to be the change, to stop persecuting others and to free our own damn selves. The mask I live in that you put on my face displaced from my own space. Now I stand where you demand no Muslim ban on stolen land. The stolen land you took from me? Why is it that you can't see? I don't need no degree and it's not hyperbole that colonization is killing me. The amputation of your reputation, the devastation of our segregation, the regulation of my emancipation. We always have a choice to make after that first mistake for your own sake and my heartbreak. The outbreak of a never-ending mistake. Colonization is not just those dudes who came here in boats, the lethal dose when our kids lose hope. It's in all of us. Pervasive. Invasive. Your story is persuasive but not grounded in fact or reality, staggeringly unacceptable, unescapable. It's your mascot, your afterthought, an apology described only in epidemiology, the anthology of a failing ecology. You want to reconcile, meanwhile you don't want the truth. Your affinity for bigotry, the acceptability of insensitivity, my replaceability, your susceptibility, our collective responsibility. Hey listeners, this is Erin, and welcome to Raw Talk. You just heard a clip of an incredible spoken word poem titled Collective Responsibility, and that incredible spoken word poet is Julie Bull. Although she humbly doesn't describe herself as precisely that, she has been writing poetry since she was a child, but never really wrote with the intention to share. One of her friends stumbled across this particular poem and encouraged her to share it with the world. And it has now become a way for her to use her voice in a joint academic and creative way. And we thought that this would be an excellent way to start today's episode to give us lots of food for thought. You might want to rewind and listen to that again and again. And we certainly don't blame you. We all did. You'll hear from her throughout this episode, and I'll introduce her further in just a bit. So don't worry, she has plenty more to share with us. But before we dive in, we wish to acknowledge this land on which the University of Toronto operates and on which we did our recordings. For thousands of years, it has been the traditional land of the Huron-Wendat, the Seneca, and most recently the Mississaugas of the Credit River. The territory was the subject of the Dish with One Spoon Wampum Belt Covenant, an agreement between the Iroquois Confederacy and Confederacy of the Ojibwe and Allied Nations to peaceably share and care for the resources around the Great Lakes. Today, this meeting place is still the home to many Indigenous people from across Turtle Island, and we are incredibly grateful to have the opportunity to work on this land. So today's episode is a special one, one that calls for continued open dialogue and learning from all of us. It's important for us to first recognize that we each have our own assumptions, perspectives, ways of knowing, our own anthropology, if you will. The broader society and structures within which we are positioned are also deeply rooted in its ways of thinking and doing. These structures, of course, include our healthcare system, medicine, and academia. 
So in this episode, we wanted to gain a better understanding of indigenous knowledge and worldview, how one can navigate between Western and indigenous worlds, how this translates to differences in approaches to health, medicine, and academia, and how we can continue to improve practitioner training in indigenous knowledge. You'll hear from a range of guests, including Lee Miracle, Julie Bull, Dr. Michael Anderson, Dr. Lisa Richardson, Dr. Jason Pennington, and Dr. Raglan Maddox. In preparing for this episode, we as the content development team went through our own journey of learning and challenging ourselves. And as the conversation unfolds, our hope for this episode is that you too, as the listener, challenge yourselves to be comfortable with being uncomfortable, to question your own assumptions and stereotypes, and what you may privilege as your way of knowing or seeing the world. All right, let's get into it. To begin our discussion, Grace sat down with Lee Miracle, a traditional teacher at the First Nations House at U of T and a faculty member at the Center for Indigenous Studies. Lee is also a prolific author and advocate who was recently named an Officer of the Order of Canada. We wanted to hear from Lee to learn more about the Indigenous worldview in the context of health and medicine. There's all kinds of branches of medicine, and it's the same in Indigenous world. There's herbologists, there's sweat uh, conductors, there's seers, there's cultural uh, teachers, all of these things. There's people that deal with food, people that deal with teas and, and actual medicine, you know, there's actual medicines in our world. In fact, 90% of the medicine in the world today comes from indigenous people. So if you think of your own doctor, you're gonna, you're not, we're not much different than that. Our medical people, they don't, uh, dole out drugs though that's the thing there's no drugs in our medical tradition and there's no surgery so if you need surgery you got to go to a western hospital if you need drugs then you got to go see these other people so what our medicine about is about is preventing anything from disastrous like that and we do know about cancer in our tradition it's not like we didn't have any cancer we had very few forms of it but we did have forms of cancer and so we would try and figure out how to prevent it because we did not have surgery and we did not have chemo, anything. No chemicals and no cutting things open. So the person would be given a diet of medicines that clean them out, attacked bacteria, attacked viruses, and there's lots of cancers that are viral or bacterially generated and all that sort of thing. We all, we all know that. And so that would sometimes work and sometimes not because some cancers are not generated in those ways. So if they're not generated in the ways you know, then you can fail even though you've done everything you could. But I think it's the same in Western world. If you do everything you can, you're not necessarily going to succeed. But we don't do invasive procedures. The other thing that we do is take care of the person's emotional being because, like a virus, for instance, it needs a hand from the cell. The cell has to help it. So then there's things the person can do to not help <laughs> the disease. And, you know, you can try and deploy those strategies where the person takes a hand in their own care. That doesn't happen in Western society. You go to a doctor, you expect him or her to heal you. And of course, that's not how we work. You are here to find how to heal yourself. That's how we work. I will not try to heal anybody of anything, not even a simple cold. But I say if you saturate your body with antioxidants and immune system builders, 
you might get through it faster. So then we tell them a recipe for berry soup, onions and garlic and cayenne and all that kind of stuff, in a submersion of berries with the, the darker berries. See what that does. We don't know if it's going to help, for sure. You know nothing for sure if you're a healer. And it's the same with Western doctors. That's why they say practicing medicine. <laughs> they don't say that they're a healing doctor. They're not going to cure you. That's the nature of medicine. But if you rely on the patient, then you have a better chance of getting to wherever it is you want to go with them. But the other thing we do is also take care of the spiritual aspects of disease because the cell, when it helps the virus or the bacteria, it helps it spiritual. <laughs> the spirit of the cell is to go ahead and give a hand. And you don't want the cell to do that. So you have to turn the spirit away from that in a different direction. And so that's what uh, some of these shamans do. They get your spirit going in a different direction. Some of them are very good at it, and some of them not so much. But that's like Western medicine, too. Some of them are good at it, some of them not. Some of them need a lot more practice. <laughs> but the notion of wellness is that the fundamental thing is that we're all healing, heading for the good life, and a medicine, medical intervention is to get you there with a boost when you need it. It's not to heal you, but to give you a boost so you can heal yourself. Indigenous views of health are holistic and have an increased focus on prevention. Lee also described how this holistic approach is increasingly missing in Canada's healthcare system. The healthcare system used to be a system. It's not now because it leaves out education. There is no healthcare education in this country anymore. And there used to be when I was a child. All kinds of health studies used to get taken when I was a child, right up till I was 17. And then all of a sudden it all went by the wayside. So that's where the system breaks down because you cannot have a system that doesn't always also educate its people. Otherwise, the people won't do what they're supposed to do. We want the doctor to fix us. We don't have to do anything. But I think that's because the health care has been taken out of the realm of the public completely. They don't want the public to have anything to do with their own wellness. And in our world, that's the opposite approach that we need to take. I think that we'll have a full medical system when we bring these two things together and then take it back to the classroom because that's the first step in your health is a five-year-old. And you need to know enough to be able to explain to that four-year-old or five-year-old or whatever. If we had a health system, it would be part of our, our uh, working life and our social life and our educational life. That's to be systemic, but you don't have that. We also spoke to Dr. Michael Anderson, an Indigenous researcher and physician who gave us his take on what Indigenous view of health is. The indigenous view of wellness and health is all-encompassing. It's holistic. It looks at all aspects of self, including physical, mental, emotional, spiritual, and strives to have them in balance. But it's not a case of one dominating the other and my experience in western healthcare is the physical realm dominates most things. It's a very different way of framing what health and well-being looks like. 
what's the cause of lung cancer? And many people would leap forward and say, well, the cause of lung cancer is smoking. But that's only one way of constructing the cause of lung cancer. And one could quite effectively and support it with evidence that lung cancer is actually a disease of adverse childhood experiences. That what goes on in your formative years, particularly harmful, adverse childhood events, actually predicts your risk of most chronic diseases, including lung cancer. In fact, smoking is really just an intermediary step, but it's not per se, the the cause effect isn't so clear. So I could construct lung cancer and most chronic diseases as being related to what went on in your childhood, rather than about diabetes being a disease of blood sugar or lung cancer being a disease of smoking. I could construct them in a way that they're really intermediary steps in a bigger process. An indigenous view on these would actually look at the more broad process and look at the all-encompassing factors rather than this direct cause and effect. From our conversation so far, it's become really clear that the Western approach to medicine can learn from indigenous ways of knowing. But this fact is often overlooked in discussions of indigenous health. Time and time again, it is portrayed solely from a deficit-based lens, which is problematic because it only serves to perpetuate stigma and stereotypes. But in fact, there's a lot of incredible research being done to improve the landscape of Indigenous health and to ensure that health research is being done in a way that is culturally appropriate. And at the core of this is the importance of relationships and interconnectedness, an idea that is fundamental in traditional knowledge systems. So next up, you'll hear from three researchers that are conducting research in partnership with Indigenous communities. Here's Julie Bull, whose poem you heard at the start of this episode. I'm originally from Happy Valley Goose Bay in Labrador. I'm a Southern Inuk member of Nunatukavut, which is along the central and southeast coast of Labrador. Julie is a research method specialist at the Center for Addiction and Mental Health. So I think that for, you know, anybody who's read any epidemiology journal, you can see why it's important uh, because of the ways in which we keep telling the story about Indigenous people without including Indigenous people in telling that story. Of course, we can look and see any kinds of health disparities or health outcomes that would be different for Indigenous people than for others. But if we are just doing these comparisons for the sake of comparing without, like, so what? So what is the point of comparing? We can't compare because the context for Indigenous people in Canada and non-Indigenous people in Canada is very different context. Mm -hmm. So we cannot be surprised then that there are differences in our health outcomes and our education outcomes. And another thing that happens in the literature often is that Indigenous people are written about as if we are historical. Like, we are not written about being in current context. Like, we also live in 20 18 in institutions like this one and doing all kinds of things. So there's a way for Indigenous people to both be traditional in their culture and beliefs, but also live in 2018. Like, we're not living 100 years ago in a teepee with no electricity. Like, I have a MacBook. Like, you know, we have, we are in this world. And so we have to stop having these stories being told by other people. There's like a long history and it continues to happen. Whenever people ask me of examples of unethical research, I don't need to look back 20 years or 30 years. I can look back to like last week. People will give me examples of what happened at their institutions that is not acceptable. But there's no ethics police. There's nobody that's kind of like coming and saying, well, you can't do that. So while I don't know how we can address that after we have an ethics approval part, because that's a huge issue, how do we get the ethics police? But at the very least, we can be doing something at that beginning so that this research doesn't even happen. If there isn't a relationship, if Indigenous people have not asked for it, then why are you doing it? And some people kind of like get offended when I say that, but 
it's an honest question. Like, I would not just point to a random country on the map and be like, oh, I'm going to go study those people. To me, that like is so, it's counterintuitive, it's counterethical, it's counter everything. If somebody asked me, absolutely, then I would be like, okay, well, here are the skills that I have. Here's your interests. How can we work together in making something happen? That's not hard to do. Like, we can all do that. Across countries uh, such as Australia, Canada, New Zealand and the United States uh, who all have similar colonial histories but, but slightly different and, and I acknowledge and appreciate the diversity of Indigenous peoples across the world, including across Canada. Uh, we see this through language and, uh, and culture and kinship lines and, and other uh, contexts. But the reason I, I raise this is because these differences are, are highlighted throughout the services uh, and, and uh, we see when we look at things like the, the census or, or government uh, health information systems that the Indigenous populations aren't necessarily reflected within those data collection systems. In, in Canada, for example, the census is the, the gold standard or discussed as the gold standard of health information data collection systems, yet they don't necessarily accurately reflect the Indigenous population. And the Our Health Counts project within Toronto, Our Health Counts Toronto, actually identified and has demonstrated that the population in Toronto, the Indigenous population, First Nations, Inuit and Métis, is between two and four times the size of the census population. So we're talking instead of a, a population of just under 20,000 as reported in the census, population is closer to, uh, to 74,000 and that was uh, published recently by Dr Janet Smiley and others in the BMJ Open. But that has serious program and policy implications if you think about the need for Indigenous tailored supports in a hospital uh, for instance, if we're funding a, an organisation to serve just one in four of those clients and we know that Indigenous populations have a higher need around some of the, the social determinants of health and health needs, predominantly as a result from, from different impacts of colonisation, then we're, we're underserving that population. And for a country such as Canada or Australia, who have universal healthcare systems, there's uh, some serious room for improvement. That was Dr Raglan Maddox. He's a member of the Matawa clan from Papua New Guinea and a postdoctoral fellow and research associate at the Wellowing House. Julie went on to share a quote with me that is simple yet powerful. First Nations, Inuit, and Métis are rights holders, not stakeholders. She emphasizes that this is a crucial jurisdictional distinction. These are human rights. Our next guest is Dr. Michael Anderson. I practiced uh, surgical oncology for years. I now practice palliative medicine. I um, also identify as an urban indigenous person. Mike echoes this view and tells us more about why community-driven questions are absolutely critical when conducting indigenous health research. Our communities, indigenous communities, have a very long history of doing research. We've survived in these tough places since time immemorial because we learn and we pass on that knowledge. So research per se isn't something that we're opposed to. It's really the approach to research, that it has to be about something that's meaningful and important to community. It has to benefit community. And it has to be done in an approach that values Indigenous knowledge and doesn't disparage it or diminish it. So research isn't foreign to us. It's really, it's not about research per se. It's about how you go about doing it. And places like this Institute really support researchers to be able to do research in a good way. 
if we start to identify different areas, different ways of making services more accessible, then we can start to act on them. So if we start to identify those, we can begin to, to work with communities and community leaders and, and, uh, and communities generally have been working towards addressing these already, but perhaps at a time of reconciliation, we can all come together and, and start to uh, make some progress or some more progress. Raglan describes how their research at the Well Living House is conducted, and this serves as another great example for us to understand the importance of community-driven research. He explains that Well Living House is actually co-governed. It has a dual governance arrangement with the Council of Grandparents or Elders and St. Michael's Hospital. The role of the grandparents uh, is to, to give us uh, strategic direction and ensure that we're, all the work that we do is, is actually grounded in community. As I mentioned, we sort of do research and we have a, a number of research projects that are going on and each of those research projects will have their own community governance arrangements and will be community driven. Uh, but the overall work of the Well Living House and the research that we do is always grounded in, in community ways of knowing and doing and part of the way that we, we do that and I think from my perspective as a visitor to Turtle Island it's it's quite a unique arrangement in that we're, the Council of Grandparents is, are always there as part of our work to make sure that we stay on track and ensure those accountability mechanisms back to Indigenous communities from across Turtle Island. As Raglan discusses how their work is fundamentally grounded in community and community ways of knowing, we wanted to find out a bit more of how this was actually done on a broader scale. Communities are going right ahead and doing it. Like Indigenous people are not waiting for governments or academics or anybody else to catch up to how they're already operating. They're just building their own governance structures and building them very well. One of the issues that I've identified and that others would agree is at the institutional level. It's at the ethics board, at universities and hospitals, generally not equipped, not trained. They don't know. There is a policy and there's a whole chapter about research with First Nations, Inuit, and Métis, yet there's not a lot of guidance on how to apply it. And so all of the, the tri-council policy is up for interpretation. That's the point, is that it's not prescriptive, which is helpful as guidance, but then it's hard when there isn't like a guidance document to go along with it to help the ethics boards understand how to interpret and apply it. Julie's PhD work is actually focused on identifying what institutions and research ethics boards across the country are already doing in applying these policies. Part of this includes the need for policy and practice at the institution level and ensuring that the community has consented before the university or institution approves it. In other words, the university will say, our ethics boards will not approve this until you have documented consent from the community. Places in which this is already successfully happening, she's found, have it built into their policies and standard operating procedures, and of course, are practicing it. Most institutions are building their partnerships with the communities. Those are the ones that are, I see moving forward the best. Not only that they require the documentation of consent, but that they have partnerships with the community. So say if you were to bring a protocol to my ethics board at the institution and there's nothing there, I can very easily direct you to the right people in the community and like build that relationship so that we're all on the same page. Now, it might be important for us to pause and reflect here to remember that this research is still being conducted within larger systems, within institutions and systems like universities, medicine, and healthcare, which all have their own unique culture. Culture, simply put, is the way we think, behave, and act. So we talked further with our guests about what this actually means. In academia, I mean, how that culture is defined, I suppose, might look different depending on who you ask. But what's hard for me is seeing the people who don't think there is a culture and who think that this is just the way this is just the way it is and this is the way it's always been which i always say is the worst reason to do anything like we need to be critically thinking about well why is it this way why are we taught this why do we do one hour of indigenous health in a 5 year program 
and then we're expected to practice. How can people practice medicine or practice whatever their, their specialty is if we're not taught? I think the first struggle is realizing how dominant the Western biomedical view is and how it's actually the new kid on the block. The history of the scientific model is actually fairly short compared to many other ways of knowing, and yet it has become so dominant that it judges everything else to it. So I I find a few struggles, one of which is always being cautious and careful to not judge different ways of knowing against each other, trying to have some humility about different approaches to the world. It's a definite tension because it is easy for the dominant way, and certainly in my life for the way I was trained in, in medicine and healthcare, to dominate. And it's this constant checking within myself of where do these things meet? Where can they work together? And I'm reminded as as I I look at the the two-row wampum sitting here that it speaks to two worlds that are both living apart but also sharing the same space and that the space between the two worlds is built in friendship, peace, and respect. And I try to think of that as I navigate between two worlds that sometimes don't talk to each other very elegantly, that the space in between those two worlds is mediated by friendship, peace, and respect, and in some ways speaks to the challenge. But the Western model is very dominant, and I see lots of places where the Western healthcare model does things very well, and I see lots of places where it does things very poorly, and it would actually be nice to see other ways of knowing and other approaches to health and well-being that exist in many parts of the world be able to have an equal footing or an opportunity to have their voice heard and to inform health and wellness all around. Throughout his own personal journey of reflecting on this navigation between two worlds, in some ways this helped propel his professional transition from surgical oncology to palliative medicine. I got interested in palliative medicine I got interested in palliative medicine in in some ways because I was really dissatisfied with how Western medicine approached death and dying. We made death and dying a medical event. Somehow, if you go back even in, in you know a hundred years, death and dying was a cultural event. It was a community event. It was a family event. And somehow we managed to convert both birth and death into medical events. And in surgical oncology, you certainly see lots of death. And the way we treat death was really, it didn't fit with how I saw the world. It's not lost on me that in hospitals, people enter through the front door. They come in through main entrance or an emergency entrance. But if you ever think about it, where do people leave a hospital when they've died? They leave through a back entrance. As soon as someone dies uh, in a hospital, they're quickly as possible. They are put into a body bag, removed from family, hidden. It's like we're shameful about death rather than respecting it as a part of life, as a natural part of life's journey we have somehow converted death into this shameful thing. So the way death is approached in 
medicine and modern medicine really didn't feel very congruent with how I saw the world. So that, I guess, opened an opportunity to marry both sort of my indigenous roots and worldview with a life event that in my world just didn't seem to be well managed, well framed in in a healthcare setting. Mike wears many hats and is also currently a PhD candidate here at the University of Toronto. For his PhD work, he's looking at Indigenous philosophies and approaches to death and dying in an urban context. He's working to develop a harmonized Indigenous and Western palliative care program with Anishinaabe Health Toronto, with an emphasis on developing strong relationships to ensure that the community has broad access to palliative care and can be reconnected with community and support at the end of life. Now that we have a better understanding of the culture of the systems that we operate in, the next question becomes, how can we continue to shift or disrupt this culture? What would collaboration between the two worlds of Western and traditional knowledge look like? We all have this responsibility, so how can we actually make the change instead of just talking about it? The culture of these systems need to shift at all the different levels. So right from when we're coming in there as students to then all the way up to the administration who are making the decisions, we would all be paralyzed if we thought that we had to yeah. like shift and break the entire system. Like that that seems impossible some days. Yeah, I mean, how do we as these individual people try to do that? Uh, so, I mean, obviously I think that these systems need to change, but so do the people within them. While the structural and systemic stuff is going to take a lot longer to sort through, if we're all doing differently individually within those systems, then we're already doing better. Then already the system is shifting. And at some point, imagine if, like, if we all thought in this relational way mm-hmm. rather than in that ego way, mm-hmm. this would be a very different environment, yeah. right? Your, your classes would be very different environments if you weren't all competing for this thing when in fact you could be cooperating and yeah. collaborating for whatever this common issue might be. It's really hard, right? Especially when we're students, because we are we are in this precarious position of also like you know how, how much can we disrupt or, or interrupt the way that things are happening uh, without consequences to our own whatever it is we're trying to do, our degrees or, or the work that we're doing. So it, it definitely is harder as students, but it's not impossible as students. While it might seem intimidating, maybe you can't like stand up to the VP of research at your institution or the, like to the CEO of the hospital. You can talk to your peers and your classmates. Uh, you can speak up when people are making these ridiculous stereotypes or perpetuating these stories that are not accurate. You can share your lessons. Like What I see that's most helpful is when people are humble and realize, oh crap, I actually don't know very much about this, and admit that and say, hey, I didn't know, and then someone said this thing to me, and then I shifted how I thought about it, and then started to ask questions. So I think in these systems, we could all learn from how Indigenous people operate in a more relational, collective way. It's not about me. It's not about I. Mm -hmm. Uh, And you so rarely even hear the language of me and I, because it's not about that. It's about us collectively. So I'm hopeful in my grand optimism that at some point, these systems will catch up to the ways in which Indigenous people already operate that will benefit all of us. This will not just benefit Indigenous people in the system or indigenous people who are being part of research projects, it will also help folks like you, right, in learning to build these relationships in a way that's meaningful. Julie, Mike, and Raglan all work within institutions that aim to support areas of need as identified by indigenous communities. As a researcher at the Wakabinis Bryce Institute for Indigenous Health at the Dalalana School of Public Health, Mike explains the importance of indigenizing the workspace. This started out in the early days of the Institute, which is fairly new, looked like just about any other academic workspace. 
And uh, this past year, we indigenized our workspace. So physically, this feels different than most institutional workspaces. But more importantly, the people I work with here are very committed to advancing causes related to Indigenous health. I work with some brilliant, creative, diverse people. And I, I think in my life, I've worked in numerous institutions, predominantly in healthcare and Western healthcare. And I look forward to every day I come in here. The diverse range of work being done at the Wakabinus Bryce Institute for Indigenous Health spans from work around homelessness or those that are precariously housed, food sovereignty, youth programs, death and dying, to Indigenous research ethics. The Well Living House, where Raglan conducts his research in public health, including commercial tobacco use and the creation of accurate health information systems, is another great example of a research centre focused on Indigenous health and well-being. We sometimes talk about these knowledge translation gaps. I guess that's essentially just referring to the gap between research and some kind of action, whatever that might be, or the the implication of that research. And an example I can think of is uh, around identifying the high rates of commercial tobacco use uh, within First Nations Inuit and Métis population. And I reference commercial tobacco use just to to recognise that there is a significant difference between sacred tobacco use and commercial tobacco use, or, or tobacco misuse as some people describe it. So an example of that is in Toronto we've seen our health counts Toronto identify that there's a, a 63% smoking rate among Indigenous population in the city of Toronto in comparison to sort of around a 15% uh, smoking rate for the general population. So we're, we're talking about a significant difference. Then it'll be interesting to see uh, what the program policy implications are. I know in Australia we've seen uh, significant declines in commercial tobacco use among the Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander population in recent years as a result of our research and as a result of tackling Indigenous smoking program in Australia, which is a self determined Indigenous health promotion public health program working with communities to not just increase cessation but also prevent uptake. And I'd like to see in, in Canada, I think there's uh, there has been a start on trying to work with Indigenous people, but there is significant room for improvement. I know that the Framework Convention of Tobacco Control, which is a uh, an international treaty looking at uh, reducing tobacco use, specifically talks about the need to uh, to work with Indigenous people and highlights a deep concern about preventable commercial tobacco use and and morbidity and mortality, but speaks about uh, Indigenous people developing, implementing and evaluating their own tobacco control programs and policy. And I mention this specifically because Canada is a signatory to the Framework Convention of Tobacco Control, yet doesn't necessarily report on on progress or work uh, undertaken in the commercial tobacco reduction area by, with and for Indigenous people. But I'd like to see some more engagement and some some safer spaces for Indigenous people to develop and and implement their own tobacco uh, reduction or or preventing uh, uptake among young people. And it'll be really neat to see some of the the findings from such work that is starting to roll out, but is still in its infancy, particularly when we have such great areas for improvement. If we could reduce from 63% down to a a 15%, I think there'd be a a lot of lives saved and a lot of money saved actually throughout the healthcare system when you think of the cost associated with that. These are all focus areas that are relevant and rooted in community, what they identify as important and are also situated within an Indigenous worldview. Health and well-being means much more than one would look at if they were sort of looking from a biomedical model. So we look housing, food security, physical literacy, health literacy, community, these things all contribute to health and well-being and they all fall under the auspices of things that we consider health and well-being.
it's very hard to do research in universities that have a particular way of looking at things without a lot of support. And that's one of the things this institute offers is a collegial group of people who support each other. Because you hear a lot of no. You hear a lot of, no, this is not how it works. Jump through this hoop. No, no, no. So support is important. Uh, I would say that we're also fortunate in the School of Public Health at University of Toronto that we are supported. The leadership of the School of Public Health has actually been quite supportive of us, which is important. So they support the Institute and the Institute's leadership, and the Institute's leadership supports the people who are working here. So that's a really important piece beyond the notion that you look at research differently is having having support is crucial. Otherwise, it's really, it's tough to navigate the university. Collectively, we have more of an ability to do so. So here at CAMH, we have this small little team that's called Aboriginal Engagement and Outreach. We are all Indigenous people, all women, not surprising. The women are ruling the world, guys. But now that I work in this little team in this big institution... I'm spoiled for any other job. I will never work at another institution that does not have a team because at least with a team, you have support from each other in this huge, massive system of CAMH. I mean, it's a huge hospital with all kinds of things happening in clinical, in research and education. It's very easy for Indigenous ways to get lost in there. Even with a team, it can be difficult. But with the team, we're not just standing alone, kind of like shouting from the mountaintop, like, hey, guys, there's other ways. There's other (laughs) ways to think about this besides that very linear biomedical model. This Western biomedical model is the basis of our healthcare system and impacts the delivery of healthcare and health research. Mike reflects on this notion of navigating between Western and Indigenous worldviews from his own experiences, as he himself was trained as a physician within a very Western biomedical model. It is a tough road to navigate at times. I have to constantly question, how do I know what I know? Why do I believe that this is the case? It's very easy in our training as healthcare professionals to get completely indoctrinated to one way of knowing and even stop questioning, why do I believe that to be true? How do I know what I know? Our training doesn't inherently teach us that. So that's, um, that's a built-in challenge within the education of healthcare practitioners. When I was in training early in my medical career, you know, I had seen within my own family some of the skepticism about institutions and healthcare, and I, I think of my grandmother in particular, who had uh, a tremendous distrust for institutions and healthcare practitioners. And I didn't always understand what that meant until I actually started practicing medicine. And as a trainee, I saw that it was not only tolerated, but it was actually accepted to be overtly racist against Indigenous people. And I can remember sitting at nursing stations and hearing the open dialogue between nurses about Indigenous families and children that I was caring for. And they didn't even think it was wrong. So what that reinforced for me was if the healthcare team was willing to sit and talk about this openly amongst themselves, they were clearly projecting that onto families. And it opened my eyes to all of the concerns, fears, barriers that my 
family had expressed were completely justified. And I I think when I was a little more naive at some points, I, I had hoped that wasn't the case. And then I started to realize that it really was the case. So it opened my eyes to where the barriers really lie. And they're they're so baked into our system that I think it behooves everybody to question things, to be open, to have dialogues. And I, I, I would rather things not be suppressed and hide underground, but I would rather these dialogues happen because it's clearly present. However, Mike also notes that in our institutions, we are starting to see a lot more work in education around cultural competency. In recent years, we have seen strides towards improving the training of our healthcare professionals to promote greater understanding of and partnership with Indigenous ways of knowing and doing in the context of health. And this is part of how we will continue to bring about change in our healthcare system. So what does current medical education look like? How has it changed? And how can we continue to improve it? To find out, Swapna sat down with the curricular co-leads of Indigenous health education in the Faculty of Medicine at the University of Toronto. Here's Dr. Lisa Richardson. I'm from a community in northern Ontario. I was born in, in Kirkland Lake and then North Bay, but my mom's community is a place called Killarney. I did a, a double major in biology and English literature. And that was because there was a need to combine both art and science. And then I thought, what would be a way for me to actually enact both of these pieces, both science and art in, in daily life and daily practice? And that is what led me to medicine. And here's Dr. Jason Pennington. I always grew up near or on our community, Wendake, which is just north of Quebec City. And I came to Toronto in 1990 to become an aerospace engineer. Um, after discovering that that wasn't really for me, I switched over to human biology. I went on to do medicine and became a community general surgeon in Toronto. I've always been passionate about teaching, became passionate. There were many ways to be involved in improving Indigenous health across the country, but felt that the best way to do that would be through teaching and through my passion for teaching. So now really focused and working with Jason on how to make sure that every single medical student, learner, and practicing physician understands Indigenous peoples, our ways of knowing different knowledge forms, and how to work with us in a good way. When I went through medical school in the late 90s, there was one whole lecture in the medical school curriculum around Indigenous health, and it was very didactic and very deficit-based, talking about all of the health inequities, but not really talking about the causes or the reasons, talking about higher mortality rates, and it just went on and on on a litany of negative things around health outcomes for Indigenous people. Now... We have made some big changes and hopefully for the better. Uh, in the curriculum, there's a whole week. It's not purely on Indigenous health, but it talks about health equity, intersectionality, and it runs through a case that really demonstrates, yes, some of the health inequities, but also hopefully discusses the reasons behind that, such as the social determinants of health from education to poverty to racism and loss of self-determination. So hopefully the learners are getting a much better example through this learning and through these discussions that we have because it's not just a didactic lecture, there's a case-based learning. And around this experiential learning, we also hope that we've made some inroads by the fact that we actually 
have our second year medical students do a blanket exercise, which is an experiential teaching method for understanding the effects that residential school and other colonizing events leading to intergenerational trauma, as well as uh, Lisa's worked very hard on developing a selective that many of, of our fourth year students can do that is much more experiential in learning about the experience of Indigenous individuals living in an urban setting here in Toronto. There's a bunch of baseline work that needs to happen around understanding who you are as a practitioner, or as a learner, what your own biases may be, which we call reflexivity. And so there is a lot of the curriculum that's focused on that. And we see that because to, to say, oh, well, this is how you would interact with a Cree a nation, and this is how you would interact with a Métis person is actually wrong. And that's not the way we have chosen to teach this. And that's not the way educators are teaching across the country. There is an understanding that the patient will share his or her background and experience as they choose to do so. And what we need to cultivate in our learners is how to be humble, how to listen in a really deep way, how to be authentic and compassionate. Lisa and Jason recommend what resources trainees can find to learn more about Indigenous health, the experiences of our Indigenous brothers and sisters, and how to participate in health services in Indigenous communities. The responsibility of all people in Canada is to actually read the TRC. And I think we're at a place now of reconciliation in our country. And in order to reconcile, the first part of the Truth and Reconciliation Commission is truth. And so understanding that truth. And the TRC went about documenting that and having residential school survivors share their experiences. They made themselves very vulnerable by doing that. And I think we have a responsibility to read that and, and honor those stories and understand those experiences. Another resource that Lisa recommends is to seek out more immersive experiences. Current education for medical trainees at the University of Toronto includes opportunities to engage with members of urban Indigenous communities and gain a deeper understanding of communities that they will serve in as practitioners. In addition to this, she recommends First Nations House, as anyone is welcome to meet with an elder and traditional teacher there, like Lee Miracle, who we heard from earlier. Culture has been shown to be an independent risk factor in health outcomes, and that was actually work done by a Maori nurse back in the 1990s, and it was published. And that concept of cultural safety has grown, and now there are cultural safety is not necessarily about the group that you are trying to heal or the population you are taking care of, but it's more about your own self-reflection and recognizing your own biases and stereotypes that you might have about the community that you are caring for and negating them during clinical experiences and interactions. So this makes us become more culturally safe, strength-based, and trauma-informed in the care that we do. And all those types of caregiving have courses and training. We've included the information on courses and training in our show notes, and we highly encourage you to check these out. And Jason reminds us that while these courses and workshops are a great start to becoming culturally competent, we also need to constantly reflect on our own biases and apply the information from these resources into practice. This process, as Jason notes, is always a work in progress, and we can always continuously learn more. Jason recommends actively engaging with Indigenous communities around us to gain a deeper understanding of the culture within which practitioners may practice. There is no pan-Indigenous culture, no pan-Indigenous way of knowing things. In fact, I always say that myself and my two brothers, we all define ourselves as a Huron-Wendat male very differently. And it means different things to each of us. And that's within three brothers. 
And believe you me, within our community, there's differences between siblings, between families, between clans, and just even between communities, because all of us have processed the concepts and the effects of colonization and the 300 years four or 400 years of contact in different ways. So never assume that you know have the one answer around how to care for Indigenous people because we all are very different. So where does trainee education need to go from here? Lisa and Jason shared their thoughts on what they'd like to see moving forward for a healthcare system where the traditional and the Western models of medicine are equal partners. I think medical education overall has to change and is in the process of changing because medical knowledge is not the same as it was in the 80s where still at that point in time the internet was in its infancy. There were no smartphones and cell phones were also just very rudimentary. So knowledge was what you had to gain and garner out of your medical school training and your clinical training was to memorize huge lists and acronyms. Whereas now, a lot of this information does not have to go into rote memory and our efforts in medical education don't necessarily have to go into memorizing long lists and memorizing knowledge because we have to know how to get this knowledge and how to uh, process it properly, but it's all on our phones. It's in up-to-date. What is becoming more and more important in the clinical field is communicating this and having good relationships with patients. And that's true of all patients, but is definitely even more acute with our Indigenous patients who might have a distrust of the Western medical model and are looking for answers around their health and building relationships has always been an indigenous way of knowing an indigenous way of treating people and of dealing with health so really it's all about those innate qualities of a physician of being a good communicator collaborator professional that are becoming more and more important and key to becoming a good practitioner yeah, just to echo that, as a profession broadly now, we need to be thinking and really clearly articulating our roles in the era of machine learning, artificial intelligence, algorithms, etc. We organize a community panel for fourth-year medical students, so they get to hear the experiences of Indigenous peoples. And it's really well set up in that it's not voyeuristic, as I was worried about. But what all four of those Indigenous patients said is exactly what Jason has been saying. We we want to be treated as a person and we want you as a practitioner to be caring and to listen to us and to be humble and to be authentic, meaning to show your humanity. And it's okay to do that. Whereas we've always been taught in medicine to be the opposite, to be objective and removed. So I think thinking about how do we move towards becoming that and our whole profession needs to move towards that. And then thinking more broadly about where medicine needs to go, I often go back to decolonizing methodologies, Linda Tui White-Smith, another great Maori scholar's contributions around what institutions need to do and researchers need to do. So decolonizing means we need to, one, recognize the effects of colonial structures and colonial practices and their ongoing effects. And I think we're getting, we're really doing a lot of work in that space right now. How does racism manifest itself? 
itself. How is colonialism and colonization the most uh, such a powerful social determinant of health and how do we work towards undoing that? But then the second piece of decolonizing means working from a strengths-based approach which really privileges Indigenous knowledges and Indigenous strengths. There's still a lot of work to do there. Because to do that, first of all, we need to have created safe spaces to bring community members into. But we need to then open up our institutions so that Indigenous peoples are more present, are visible, are celebrated. And that means recruiting Indigenous students, recruiting more Indigenous staff and faculty, doing scholarly work that values Indigenous knowledges, having elders be supported as professors. Once we do that, we can work towards actually collaborative decision-making with Indigenous communities around how to we can continue to work because, of course, we're always seeking input from community members, but in a really strong, meaningful way, have Indigenous input as not just advisors, but really guiding our institutions. I think traditional medicine overall and any non-Western model of care, of providing health care to patients has largely been dismissed by the Western model. And before we even go into accepting traditional medicines and acknowledging Indigenous ways of knowing, we actually, as a society and as a health profession, have to first stop being afraid of the things that we don't understand and don't know, whether it be around Indigenous health or other ways of knowing from other cultures. But this demonization that has gone on for centuries around Indigenous culture and Indigenous medicines and it being witchcraft or demonic is obviously quite false. Mm -hmm. And first, we have to get away from being afraid of even acknowledging that it exists and that it is not evil before we become actual equal partners in bringing it forward. In putting together this episode, we as the content development team learned many important lessons. So we thought we'd take this time to reflect and share some of our main takeaways and points that strongly resonated with us, that helped us to re-examine the way that we think and view the world. We should all consider ourselves responsible for becoming familiar with our country's history and the context in which we all live on Turtle Island. First and foremost, we learned that relationships are intrinsic to Indigenous worldview, and therefore building relationships with people and community is critical when conducting research as well as in clinical practice. Also, one common mistake that we tend to make is to think about all Indigenous people in the same way, when there are in fact incredibly diverse Indigenous communities, each with their own unique histories, languages, cultural practices, and beliefs. But I think the biggest takeaway for us is that we need to critically think and be reflexive in understanding why do we know what we know? What do we take for granted? What do we privilege as ways of learning and knowing? It is through this that we can all better learn from each other and appreciate that there are multiple ways of knowing. And this is not only from Western and Indigenous ways, but also from other cultures, religions, and beliefs. So we need to be humble in what we don't know and have humility. We need to have open dialogue and be vulnerable. We need to be okay with not knowing everything and to ask questions when we don't. So as Julie reminds us, I encourage people to to ask questions and to not be afraid to ask the wrong question. I get that a lot. When I, and whenever I teach in, in an Indigenous Studies class, there's rarely Indigenous people in the class, right? It's usually non-Indigenous people who are interested to learn more. And they're always so terrified that they're going to say the wrong thing, that they're going to offend somebody, that they're going to do whatever. And that can be paralyzing for the person who's feeling those things. And it means that we're never going to change if we're too afraid to even ask the question. 
From our experience working on this episode, we are reminded that we all have a responsibility, a collective responsibility, to disrupt the culture. This is especially important in light of the current conflict on Wet'suwet'en First Nation territory in northern BC. It's daunting to think that we have to change the world by ourselves, but each and every single one of us has the ability to disrupt in our own microwaves. Ask questions, help others, and share your learnings. We are all collectively learning together, and we can all learn from each other. Thank you very much to our guests on this episode, Lee Miracle, Julie Bull, Mike Anderson, Raglan Maddox, Lisa Richardson, and Jason Pennington for sharing your stories, experiences, and insight. We are incredibly grateful. Thanks also to Roderick Ross for performing Drops of Brandy from Anne Letterman's Old Native and Métis Fiddling in Manitoba, Volume 2, which you heard throughout this episode. The content for this episode was carefully planned by our content development team, Grace, Maria, Swapna, and Kat, who also served as our audio engineer. We'd love to hear what you thought of this episode and also share what you learned with us. Send us a voice note or email or tweet us at Raw Talk Podcast. Until next time, keep it raw. Raw Talk Podcast is a student presentation of the Institute of Medical Science in the Faculty of Medicine at the University of Toronto. The opinions expressed on the show are not necessarily those of the IMS, the Faculty of Medicine, or the University. To learn more about the show, visit our website, rawtalkpodcast.com, and stay up to date by following us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at Raw Talk Podcast. Support the show by using the affiliate link on our website when you shop on Amazon. Also, don't forget to subscribe on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever else you listen to podcasts, and rate us five stars. Until next time, keep it raw.